The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? On this episode, we're joined by Benita Hill, and she is a songwriter. As a lot of you know, songwriters are like heroes to me. I have great admiration for people who write the songs. I first became aware of her as being the writer of the song Two Pina Coladas, which was recorded by Garth Brooks, and of course the song Our Song, also recorded by Garth Brooks, which I first heard on the Double Live album, which, by the way, I think is one of the greatest live albums of all time. But, as is frequently the case, things aren't always what you expect them to be, and once you start digging, you really, really start to find out about someone. Very glad that I had the chance to speak with Benita Hill. With no further ado, I'm going to take you to our conversation. Enjoy. By the way, first of all, I just want to say thank you for uh, reaching out to me. I, you know, read your uh, illustrious uh, bio of people you've talked to, and I'm still so humbled to be in in that company. So, <laughs> very cool. Well, I'm very, very honored to be joined by you, and I want to introduce you to the listeners out there. On this episode, we're joined by a woman who believes life is a song worth singing. Benita Hill is a singer-songwriter, also a recording artist, a very diverse artist, in addition to collaborating with jazz musicians like Kirk Whalem and Isaac Hayes. She's written songs recorded by people like Crystal Gale and Garth Brooks. The music of Benita Hill has been heard on radio, television, and on the stage. Thanks for being with us. Well, it's great to be with you, Paul. Thank you. So your music love has been lifelong. Oh, yes. Yes, most definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up around music. My mom was a singer. She was a big band singer in the late 40s and 50s. She sang in Chicago and sang with big bands mainly Latin big bands, but uh, kind of just doing the big band standards. And she worked at a club there called the Chaperie, which was kind of like the big spotlight club of the 40s and 50s in Chicago at that time. So, yeah, I grew up around music, listening to all kinds of music, really, through my mom's influence, not only jazz and big band and all the great singers that she liked, like uh, Ella and Sarah Vaughan, also Patti Page, later on Patsy Cline, who I also love. So I was influenced by a lot of different singers and a lot of different kinds of music. And your mother was named Ada? Her name, her given name was Ada, but she also went by the stage name during that time of Carmen Rebel. Uh-huh. So she had, she had a, an agent or a manager, I think, that wanted to since she was doing the Latin big band thing, and uh, I guess he wanted to give her a more exotic name. People did that in those days, I think. They changed their names to give it a, you know, kind of an exotic zing or something. <laughs> hmm. And so what was the, if you could say, the artists or the bands that most resonated with you? Well, you know, back then, 
I I liked Julie London a lot, but you know, and I was still little and was kind of listening to to that kind of music until the Beatles and, and the Rolling Stones and all the British invasion and rock and roll bands kind of were the influential bands of, of my generation and just loved rock and roll. I got introduced, I think, more to the blues through listening to the Beatles and the Stones than a lot of these artists that I didn't know about but was exposed to through what they were influenced by. So it kind of opened up my my musical boundaries to a much wider territory. And it was, yeah, I just, I was just music crazy. And then I just loved country music too, because I loved, so I was, yeah, I loved the great girl singers of all genres, including country. I loved Tammy Wynette and Brenda Lee and Dolly Parton. So in fact, Dolly Parton was somebody I used to go see at the Grand Ole Opry when I was attending college in Murray, Kentucky. And I, it was about a three hour drive. And I would uh, come down to Kentucky and see the Grand Ole Opry and see some of the greats of that era, Mel Haggard and Dolly Parton, Porter and Dolly, and Loretta Lynn. It just was wonderful, and I was just so enamored by the whole thing. And I loved Dolly and and Loretta particularly because they wrote their own songs. And up until that point, I was writing songs, but I never really could perceive about how to make a living at it. But I definitely got inspired. and. kind of started to pitch my songs to Nashville, sending them to publishers. And that's kind of what got me going. Dropped out of college and moved to Nashville. <laughs> hmm. So the early songs you were writing, tell us a little bit about that. What was it? Was it a way of just kind of expressing yourself or? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a way of expressing myself. I think they were very simplistic. I knew three chords on the guitar, but I had always taken piano lessons, and I knew a lot more chords on the piano, so I used piano to write on, and uh, it allowed me a little bit more creativity to explore kind of different, you know, go out on a limb with some chord changes, and and, and I was like jazz, too, so... I don't know. I, I like you said. It's my tastes have always been kind of eclectic, and so my influences. And I think it probably must come through in what I do. But I just really loved the absolute heart and simplicity of country music, and the lyrics to me were so powerful because they were simple, direct, and real. And um, at that time in my life, when I was kind of newly writing songs, that seemed like the, the best approach for me is to try to keep it simple and kind of say what I meant. So in a way, uh, say what I was feeling, in a way it was uh, a process of kind of an inner expression and emotional expression, catharsis, all that stuff. So it was mostly I did it for me. But then as I listened and was trying to learn and hone my craft, I was sending songs, like I said, to publishers in Nashville, and a couple of tapes back in those days, it was, this was, would be like 1979, 1980. Back in those days, uh, there were still cassettes. So I would send my cassettes to publishers, and most of the time I got rejected, but there was one publisher who liked what I did, and he actually got me some cuts, which, a cut, a recording, 
uh, for those listening who don't know what a cut is, and that, yes, sometimes they can bleed, they hurt. But <laughs> uh, this this one was uh, re- very exciting to me because it was a song of mine that was recorded by an artist who Owen Bradley was producing, and Owen Bradley had produced Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline. He, Brenda Lee, he was huge. So the fact that this producer had chosen one of my songs to record on the new artist he was working with, that was kind of the deciding factor for me to to drop out of college and move to Nashville. So I did. And of course, when I got to Nashville, I was rudely awakened and quickly awakened to the fact that just because a song gets recorded by an artist, no matter, you know, even on a major label like RCA, which at the time that was the label that uh, he was producing for, doesn't mean it's going to become a record, which it didn't. And it sat on a shelf and it never really saw the light of day. So, but I was in Nashville and I thought, well, I'm here. I'm going to just keep doing what I do. What I do. So I did. (laughs) Kept on writing. Still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. What was the name of the artist who cut the first song of yours? Her name was Anita Ball. A and like, yeah, kind of similar, kind of ironic. Anita, I'm Bonita, but her name was Anita Ball, and the song was called Time Like a River. And uh, yeah, and Owen Bradley produced it, but and on RCA Records. But like I said, it never saw the light of day. Hmm. Did you ever get a chance to hear it? I think I did. I think my publisher played it for me. Seems like I don't have a copy of it, but. Uh, I, I think I did hear it at that time and, of course, was very excited and very hopeful that it was going to come out and be released as a single. So when you made this move to Music City, when you went to Nashville, were you going there confidently? Oh, no, no, no. I was afraid and uh, I had an early marriage at the time and I was uh my then husband didn't want to move. He did move with me, but he was kind of ready to, he was also in the music business, but he was getting, he was older than me and he was kind of disenchanted with it. And I was newly excited and wanting to kind of, yeah, begin my career where he was sort of wanting to phase out and maybe be a gentleman farmer or something <laughs> and not think so much about all the of the music business. So but, but but he did move down with me, and as my career was sort of, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was really taking off at the time, but I was given a lot of opportunities to co-write with established writers and pitch songs to artists through my publisher. So I was very excited and very passionate about the whole process and and moving forward in my career and in my work and. So it just, we drifted apart, and uh, he moved back in, uh, to Kentucky, and I, I stayed here and kept on writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about the first song of an artist, or, or that an artist recorded of yours that was released? Um, that would have been, okay, that would have been in the mid-80s, so to listen up kids, aspiring songwriters. So I was here about, I would say at least six or seven years before I got a major cut. And this was by a gal named Robin Lee. She, at that, it was in the, it was, I would say it was 84, 
485, something like that. Maybe it was 86. But anyway, she uh, recorded a, a song of mine. It was an album cut. It was not a single. And it was a, a really good year because for her because she had just been nominated and won the ACM, American Country Music Awards, New Artist Award that year. So, so that was very exciting. That was my first big cut. What misconceptions do you think there are about Nashville? Well, um, you know, when I came to Nashville, I'm sure there's a lot of them. When I came to Nashville, it was it's definitely hard to break into the music business, the songwriting business, and it takes a lot of hard work and dedication, just like anything that you want badly enough in life, I guess. It doesn't usually come really easy. And you have to pay your dues. So I was, uh, I think a lot of people come here, especially now it's very different with the many years now that we've been seeing artists born on television, basically, by, you know, trying out their talent in television talent shows like American Idol and The Voice. And a lot of great artists come through that uh, medium, but still, there. I think the generation now that come that has been grown up with that has been maybe maybe seeing it as a little easier than it is. I, I don't really know. I do some mentoring occasionally with the Nashville Songwriters Association, and I talk to a lot of young up and coming writers, and some of them are realistic, but some are, their thoughts are, you know, they come from a town where they say, well, of course, you know, they're. <laughs> They're, they might be a big star there, but getting to Nashville is, you know, a great big ocean and not a little pond for, for songwriters. So I think a misconception might be that it is easier than it really is, and it's not. It, uh, your heart will get broken a million times, but those kind of stories make for good country songs. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's... A person who plays a part in your story. I'm hoping you can tell us about meeting Alan Reynolds, the producer. Oh, yes. Yeah, Alan, uh, definitely a, a mentor. I would say my probably biggest mentor in the music business. I had been here for many years. I was uh, writing, you know, wrote for a couple of publishing companies had some cuts here and there, not, nothing really big, but, but you know, some, some fairly big artists in the, in the 80s and um, no singles. But in the 90s, I uh, went to work as a receptionist at Alan Reynolds' recording studio. I had just lost a deal, a publishing deal, that I was pretty disappointed about that because I, I was just turned 40, and it was, I was at the age where, oh, gosh, uh, what am I going to do now? I'm 40. Now I look back, I think, well, 40, I was really young. But <laughs> I was looking back like uh, I was thinking, I feel like my career is washed up, and now I don't have a publishing deal anymore. And getting a job working as a receptionist for Alan was probably the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me because – I had pitched him in my years before uh, living in Nashville and songwriting and pitching. I had pitched him songs that he really liked. He was uh, very supportive and always had an open door to listen. He's kind of like that with songwriters. He's retired now, of course, but 
he, he wouldn't turn anyone away. He, he was very, very open to listening because he truly believed in the magic of songs and that sometimes, you know, you can't overlook the fact that a great song may be out there, uh, not necessarily coming from the latest big hit writer either. So anyway, he, uh, when I went to work for him, well, it was not only wonderful to get to work for him and be in that environment, but at the time he was producing Garth Brooks and about a year after I'd been working there, something like that, maybe not that long, but Garth was coming into getting ready to record another album. And, and of course, as a songwriter, I was hoping that I'd be able to pitch Garth a song, but I didn't want to step on any boundaries in Alan's office. So I asked him, you know, if, I, if it would be okay. And he said, of course, you know, if you want to pitch him something, he said, you're a writer, go ahead. And um, so I did, I pitched him songs. He didn't like any of them. Well, he, I wouldn't say he wouldn't like, Garth is so wonderful and kind. He's, he's also very encouraging. And he was like, oh, that's a great song, but no, it's not for me. So he would be very kind when he, he would uh, pass on something. But he, uh, there was one song when I actually got enough nerve to give him a copy of my very first album, Fan the Flame, and I, which a self-made album. And he heard a song on there. And also, I want to emphasize, it was a kind of a jazz pop album, not really a country album. It was more of a kind of, it was something I had gotten into debt with my credit cards to make, but I, having been turned down so many times by record labels, I'd had a couple of major record label deals too, which didn't go anywhere. So I wanted to, I decided to make an album on my own. So I put everything into it, heart, soul, and pocketbook. So I got up enough nerve to give Garth a copy of uh, this album. And lo and behold, the next day, when he came into the studio where I was working, he said I, he heard a song on the album that he wanted to cut. And I was flabbergasted. It was a song called Take the Keys to My Heart, which I co-wrote with Pam Wolf and Tommy Smith. And it was a kind of a jazz swing version of this song. And ironically, I had made a country demo. We had made a country demo of this song with a country singer. And which I had also pitched to Garth, but for some reason, it was, so he had heard the song. But when he heard it on my album, I don't know what it, it was that changed his mind, but he decided to cut it. And uh, yeah, it was it was just amazing. So you just never know. <laughs> it surprised me. It, it surprised all of us. And then he went on to cut some other songs too. So we, we've developed a nice friendship over the years, and I feel very honored to to know him as well, but I know that your question was about Alan, and Alan was just, he played such an important part in my career. For example, when I wrote Two Pina Coladas with Sean Camp and Sandy Mason, Garth had cut a lot of songs for his seventh album. That was the album that it appeared on, which a lot of artists do. They overcut. They do. They record a lot of songs, and then they'll choose which ones they're going to include on the record. And so this, uh, he had recorded our song to Pini Coladas, and then when it was coming time to finalize the album and do pick the songs and get them in order, sequence, and which Alan was very, very influential in, in doing, and his judgment is. 
I think, impeccable, always has been. But maybe I'm prejudiced. But anyway, he uh, Garth was thinking of, of bumping the song to Pina Coladas. He he thought, you know, he had a lot of songs that he liked, and he they were trying going through songs and trying to decide which was going to get left off and which was going to make the cut. And Alan was the one who encouraged Garth to not let that song go. He thought it was a hit, and he thought it was different enough for Garth that it was something that was going to really resonate with his audience. Up until, this was kind of before the popularity of of island country came on the scene, especially with Kenny Chesney, and Kenny wasn't really a mainstream artist yet. He was still a twinkle in his mother's eye or something like that. But anyway, he wasn't really a mainstream country yet. So, of course, he popularized it, and he's a fabulous artist, really really great on in so many on so many levels. But anyway, so they so Garth ended up keeping the song and I Garth had told me uh a few years later after he'd been on tour and, and saw how popular the song was in concert, he said, you know, I would have not called that. It was all Alan who pushed for that song and uh he was the one that said, you know, hey, you can't let this one go and and uh I'm glad that Garth listened to Alan. <laughs> and th- that is such a beloved song. Everybody it knows is. that. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. It's like when I, I've seen Garth many times in concert and he, he's so phenomenal. And when he does that song, it's almost like, it's like every other song. It's like, oh God, yes, that's one of my favorite Garth songs. But it's like almost like a disconnect with uh, it's not even mine anymore. It kind of belongs, and it, it belongs to Garth and and his fans. Well, what inspired two pina coladas? <laughs> well, I'll tell the story, and I tell it often. But the story goes: I was in a writing session with Sandy Mason and Sean Camp, and we were at Sandy's place, and it was a cold day in February and we were throwing ideas around trying to figure out what we wanted to write like a lot of songwriters do in a session. If you know, if you all come in with ideas, you know, you might want to work on one, you want, might want to work on another or none of them may feel like you want to work on that today. Sometimes nothing gets done. So that was kind of the direction we were heading that day. Nothing much was getting done. So we were thinking maybe it's time to go to lunch. So we stepped outside. It was a cold day, very cold and gloomy. And we thought, gee, we just started having a conversation. Gee, it would be nice to be at the beach right now, maybe having a pina colada or two, one in each hand. We were just throwing these lines around. It was like, well, let's go inside and write that and see what happens, just so this day won't be a complete wash and we can say, you know, we did something. So we really did write this song pretty quickly in that day and made a little demo of it. And... uh Sandy played it for Alan Reynolds, and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> and the other song that Garth recorded, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the inspiration of Take the Keys to My Heart. Yeah. Well, that was a song. Uh, I told you I wrote that with Pam Wolf and Tommy Smith, and that was an idea that I think Pam had the title, and we all loved the title, so we got together and uh, wrote the song, and everybody loved it. We had pitched that song to so many people. It was on hold with Brooks and Dunn for a while. It was on hold by Lori Morgan for a short while. 
per label. And so we, we always felt that song was just going to be something special. And then, back to Alan Reynolds again, I had played it for Alan in one of my pitch sessions, and Alan thought he was working with, I think the artists he was working with at the time were, were Emmy Lou Harris and Kathy Matea. He said, well, I think, you know, I want to play it for, for them. And I was, like, very excited that he would, he, and he did play it for them, but they didn't. They didn't hear it for them, so they passed. But Alan kept, that was one of the songs he kept in his drawer, as he used to say. I'll keep that one in the drawer of songs that he really likes, that he hopes will, you know, at the right time uh, he'll find, and the right artist will find the opportunity to play that song again. So I don't think he ever did play it for Garth, but ironically, that was the song that when I gave Garth my first album, my self-made album, that was the one that Garth chose to do. And uh, later on, we talked about the magic and the serendipity of of a song, of how a song comes into comes to life or comes into comes to get recorded, because Alan had liked it. A lot of people had liked it, put it on hold, and and said they were going to cut it, but did not. And yet, here was Garth hearing a, a different version and decided to cut it and working with Alan. So it was kind of like a circle, uh, kind of a magical circle. So we we talked about that story too when that was going down, and a lot of magic happened in uh, Jack's tracks at that studio now called Allentown, and it's owned by Garth Brooks. I'm so happy about that. It stayed in the family, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, a lot of magic went on in that place. Still is going on. Well, speaking of still going on, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the most recent Garth album, Gunslinger, I was listening to mm-hmm. it just the other day, the song Weekend that you wrote mm-hmm. with him. Yeah. What is he like to write with? Oh, Garth, is he's a great writer. I've written before with him. This was the first song that we wrote that he recorded. But he's very, he's got great ideas. He's, he knows what he wants. He's extremely knowledgeable and, and inspired about how a song should go and song structure and uh, feeling. He's kind of bringing it all together. But he's got, he's just all over the place. Garth is an amazing person. I, I He will be writing in a writing session and then he'll, he'll take a call because he'll be, you know, working on a, um, some other opportunity with somebody else. He'll be on the phone with his manager or with his publicist or with, you know, a company that he's trying to do, you know, maybe do a sponsorship with or a charity that he's working with. And he will, he's wearing all these hats all the time, all in the middle of the writing session. So I don't know how he does it, but he manages to always stay focused on the song. Just kind of blows me away because I'm kind of like one, I got to stay focused on the song. (laughs) (laughs) I want to dive into your recordings. They are jazzy and that might surprise some people, maybe not surprise other people, but tell us a little bit about the expression you make with your recordings. I'll tell you what, uh, when I made my first album that I talked about earlier, I had been an artist on Mercury Polygram. I was signed by Steve Popovich, who was the head of the label at that time here in Nashville. 
and released a single. And my single was doing quite well, but then it was some other political things beyond my control were happening at the label and people were leaving and people who were in charge and kind of promoting my record were no longer doing that. And anyway, there's a lot of stuff I wasn't familiar with and how the music business works. So my record that had been climbing the charts suddenly died, died in the water. So I couldn't figure out why. So I got very discouraged, kind of discouraged with the music business, went into a period of it, my song, the song that I released, a song called You Make It Hard to Say No, was very well received at radio, and I had a top 10 video for it on country music television. This was 1987. So I, and it was kind of a pop record because at that time, I don't know if you might remember this, Paul, but pop, country pop was kind of making a lot of uh, impact on country radio. It wasn't, you know, there were artists like Mary Chapin Carpenter and Roseanne Cash and coming out with, with songs that were a little bit different and more poppy or maybe more Americana. And that's kind of where I, where I was at. So anyway, after that experience and then getting dropped from the label, I decided, you know, I'm just going to make my own album. I am going to write the songs and do the songs that I want to do and do them the way I want to do them. And I'd always loved jazz. I loved swing and I was good at singing it. I guess from all those years, earliest years of singing along with all of my mom's records, it just, it just resonated with my soul. So, and, and I was good at it. So I felt more comfortable, I think, singing that than anything mostly kind of torchy music. My music is kind of torchy, bluesy, and uh, jazzy, and pop, all of that, which doesn't, to me, stray that far from a lot of what some country music is, too. That was my first recording, and it was kind of born out of frustration or just basically, like, I, if I'm not accepted, because I felt like I was doing all the right things, I had the record deal, and I was, you know working the radio stations and my record was getting great reviews and, and airplay and all of that. I thought, well, I've done all I can. And, and I just circumstances beyond my control stopped it from happening. And uh, so I'm just going to keep doing what I do, but I'm going to do it on my own terms. And so I did. And, and I made this album. And like I said, ironically, a year later after I made the album and gave a copy of it to, might've been a year and a half, gave it to Garth, one of the songs, he recorded one of the songs. So it was, I definitely made back my investment, which was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, the people out there can visit your website. It's BenitaHill.com, B-E-N-I-T-A. And there's a song on there. I really, really enjoyed it. I've listened to it a few times. I'm hoping you can tell us about your song, I Carry a Torch. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I Carry a Torch was, uh, it's a song on my latest album called Noir, N-O-I-R, which is, I guess Noir is, can be French or Spanish or Italian. Anyway, it means dark or night. And the songs are all kind of torchy and moody and kind of a little different album from what I've done before, a little more produced, a little more... What's the word I'm looking for? I didn't use a band. A lot of it was just 
programmed and with drums and, and uh, keyboards. And I did use my number one keyboard player, Kevin Medill, who played on all my albums, as well as some other great musicians. But it was just a little bit of a departure for me. And, uh, but, I, but I love that song. But, back, but, but I love the album. But back to the song, I Carry a Torch. That was an idea. I had to write a song about my grandmother. Now, my grandmother was immigrated from Italy back in the 20s, and she had a marriage to my grandfather that in those days was kind of arranged by your parents. If it wasn't arranged, it was really highly suggested and and preferred by your parents that you marry somebody who had a future. And she was in love. My grandmother told the story. She was in love with a sailor. And, of course, he, they, she lived in southern Italy near the ocean, near the water. And she would tell me a story of sitting on the cliffs and being so sad because her, the boy that she loved was sailing away across to America or wherever he was going. And she kind of pined for him, hoping he would, would come back or she'd see him again. But in the meantime, she married my grandfather at the urging of her of her dad and her family, which turned out to be a great thing because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, but I the way she tells the story, and she was Italian, so she had this broken English, but it was beautiful and a beautiful way of talking. And it just made me picture this, her sitting on these cliffs and pining away for this love who had sailed away. And so that's what inspired that song. I'd had that idea for a long time, and I just took a, took, you know, on a whim, I took a chance and put some of these more obscure songs on this album because I want to share them. And I was, they, you know, they meant a lot. They had a, they had a personal, emotional meaning for me. What would you say has been the best compliment you've received as an artist? Oh. Oh, well, <laughs> that might have been from Little Richard. Back in 19, I think it was 86, I sang with Charlie Daniels on the Volunteer Jam, which was a concert series that he did for many, many years. And I sang with a couple of gals, Carolyn Corlew and, and her sister, Christy, and we we were the background singers. And... Well, Richard played the show one year, and I was in awe of him. And he was just so nice, so nice to me. Uh, met him backstage, talked to him. He had just released a book, kind of an autobiographical book, which I have here, and I brought it because I wanted him to sign me a copy, which he did, and he wrote something beautiful in it. So anyway, I uh, he said, after singing, we sang together with uh, little Richard, I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my soul. And after the show, he came up to me, gave me a hug, and he said, girl, you are beautiful, and you can sing. Don't ever give up your dream. Wow. <laughs> I thought just that affirmation from him, it was like, don't ever give up your dream. Because, you know, you get tempted in the music business many times to give up your well not, you want to give up part of you does and part of you doesn't because you just love it and it's you know it's just a passion but anyway hearing that from him was so affirming and so inspiring and yeah I would say that was probably 
one of my most memorable compliments I have ever gotten. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> From little Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you know what? You want to hear something really funny also about that, that story is that several years later, I, well, it wasn't, it was way more than several years later. It was about 10 years later. I had a little bout with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I got diagnosed with that. And my boyfriend at that time was, he was in sales and he traveled a lot. And while I was at home and, and recovering, he w- was on a plane and flying to Atlanta from Nashville. And little Richard was on the plane. Actually, he was flying from Atlanta back to Nashville. And little Richard was flying back to, to play the Grand Ole Opry. And I had told this same story that I just told you to this uh, my boyfriend. And he told that story. He sat next to little Richard on the plane home. And he said, I have a girlfriend who just adores you. And she sang. And he actually remembered me. And he wrote me a card. And he, my boyfriend told, told him again, to little Richard, he said, she is, she talks about that story and working with you. And that was the highlight of her career. And she is, she's got cancer and she's at home struggling. And, and, and he wrote down, he took a card and wrote down that I, I am thinking about you. I am praying for you. And I love you. Love little Richard. Oh my gosh. And so again, he blessed me. Hmm. Uh, it's just amazing. I know. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to tell that story <laughs> <laughs> again, because it's magic. Life comes comes about in um, miraculous ways. And I think music is a thread that kind of weaves that type of a connection where otherwise there might not have been one, you know? Absolutely. Well, when you were going through something like that, something that's just so, gosh, you going through cancer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you say to anyone who either is faced with something like that or someone that they love is faced with something like that? Well, you know, cancer is a tough one. And uh, it can be, you know, it, all during that time, I was like walking a tightrope and balancing that line between staying positive, using the encouragement and that I was getting from, from friends and family and doctors, some doctors, some were of the other opinion that, well, you know, you, you might die. It's, we've seen it happen. You know, some people make it, some people don't. So I was walking that tightrope all the time thinking I was still in my 40s. I was young at the time. So I was, and I had a young son. He was eight years old. And I was, I'm not ready to die. I don't want to. And yet I'm being bombarded in, in the hospital and asked, do you have a will? Do you have a living will? Uh, are your affairs in order? And I'm thinking, how am I going to do all this? I'm not ready to die yet. But yet all of the indications pointed that, you know, it was it, it, this really could happen. And there's not a lot of people that do recover from, from this particular type of cancer at that time. I think it's the success rate now. You know, it's amazing that right now the success rates are rising so so much, which is a wonderful thing. So right now, I would say, you know, honor all those feelings because honestly, they're, you know, you're going to feel on the one hand, uh, hopeless and and, and and on the other hand, there's, there's hope too. 
But either way, I think it's focus on, on living life, living life every chance you get and enjoying your family and your children and your loved ones and and surrendering. I think it's important to have a connection with whatever you call it, God or higher power or Jesus, and I happen to choose God and Jesus. <laughs> but whatever you call it, it's it's important, I think, to keep that connection and know that no matter what you are experiencing in your health, there is still something you can do to brighten up somebody else's life that day, a word or a, or a, or just a laugh. <laughs> Laughter is very important too. But I think it's important to stay hopeful and do all you can to stay healthy you know, watching your diet, and you don't want to watch your diet to the extent where you, you know, have, don't have fun, but I, because I like to, I'm very careful about my diet, but, you know, I'll, I like to eat chocolate, too, and I, <laughs> I like to have a glass of wine, so, you know, I'm not like a huge, I'm not an ascetic or anything, but it's, uh, enjoy, enjoy life, and find that love and lightness in your heart, yeah, that that is always there, but certainly can get clouded by Things. And I think a lot of times people who get cancer do, they feel a lot. They have, they kind of take on maybe the woes of, of the world or, or of their family or their loved ones. And um, which is not, I wouldn't say just a lot of people, it's probably most of us. But yeah, I think just, just hanging on to the light. What is the best thing about living life as Benita Hill? Oh, well, uh, one great thing is like I can get up in the morning and have my tea and I don't have to put on makeup or get, or uh, get out of my pajamas and I can just sit down and play the piano and do whatever I want. So that's pretty <laughs> nice. <laughs> that is nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a luxury. It's one I didn't think I'd ever have, but, you know, I do have it now and it's it's lovely. It's uh, wonderful. And I'm grateful to God for that gift. You were just mentioning chocolate and wine. and <laughs> Two I, of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah, I guess gifts. But I wanted to know, what is your all-time favorite meal? If you could just have Ooh. anything. <laughs> yeah. Mm. If I could have anything, oh gosh. I have to say it would just be a plate of regular old spaghetti, really good spaghetti with marinara sauce and a nice homemade salad. I like to cook, so I make this a lot for myself. And uh, and a salad and some really good hot, you know, crusty Italian or French bread. Yeah, and a glass of wine. That is my absolute favorite meal. <laughs> One of the wonderful things about communication is we have an incredible ability these days to share with people. We just don't know who's listening. So, yeah. very open-ended, I would give you the mic. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Oh, uh, well, I'd say thank you for listening. If you're still tuned in, that means you're listening. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't turned us off. Yeah, I like you. <laughs> Who is Benita Hill? 
How would you define the woman? Well, uh, I would say uh, I, I think of myself as a warrior woman, a fighter, a survivor, a thriver, an inspirer, a, a student, sometimes a teacher, maybe. And, uh, yeah, a lover of life, a lover. Anyone out there, if they want more information, again, they can visit BenitaHill.com, BenitaHill.com. And thank you very much for being here with us. It's been a total gas and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul, for inviting me to be on your show. My pleasure. It was an honor to talk to you. God bless. All Thank right. you. God bless. Till next time. Adios. Bye-bye. <laughs> the Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>